The information provided on this podcast is not legal advice and is intended for the sole purpose of providing education and legal information. Laws change over time, and the information provided on this podcast may not be up to date. We make no warranty, express or implied, regarding the information provided by our team or our guests on this podcast. The information should not be construed as legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with us or any of our guests on the podcast. If you would like to consult with an attorney, please call 1-800-VICTIMS. That's 1-800-842-8467 for attorney referral contact information. This podcast provides a platform for the exchange of ideas and information to help educate crime victims on their rights. Some content will include topics and materials that may involve descriptions of violence or assaults, which can be distressing to victims and survivors. It may also impact service providers experiencing vicarious trauma. Welcome back to part two of our discussion. Let's pick up where we left off. I would like to switch gears for a moment and talk about the related crime of sexual assault. Can you talk a little bit about how sexual harassment relates to sexual assault in general? Yes, sexual assault can be a form of sexual harassment. Now, there's a number of different ways in which a victim of sexual assault might interface with the work that we do at Legal Aid at Work. So the example I gave earlier was someone who was sexually assaulted at the workplace. That can clearly be a form of sexual harassment and perhaps the most extreme form of sexual harassment. But there may be a worker who's sexually harassed outside of work. Maybe it has absolutely nothing to do with their workplace, but because they've been a victim of a terrible crime, they might need some help at work. They might need time off to receive medical services or counseling. They might need to go to court and be a witness, or maybe they need some modifications at work because now they are experiencing, for example, post-traumatic stress or depression. There are a number of different laws that would protect a sexual assault survivor and provide her with some relief at work, even if the crime itself didn't take place at work or was in any way related to the workplace. I want to understand the implication of sexual harassment versus sexual assault from the standpoint of the survivor. Are there any differences in reporting? There may be differences in terms of what the survivor decides to do with respect to reporting. Um, They may want to report sexual assault as a crime and go to the police. They may, if they're a victim of sexual harassment, that's not sexual assault, still want to go to the police. But the police are, I suspect, less likely to pursue a crime of sexual harassment that doesn't rise to the level of sexual assault. So there may be different levels of reporting that could be uh, implicated depending on the form of violence or discrimination or harassment a victim is exposed to. And if a survivor is not sure as far as where they are on that spectrum, are are they free to to give your organization a call to discuss that? Yes, they're certainly welcome to call us if they want to have more information about what options they have in terms of going forward. Um, And certainly sexual assault survivors can, but do not have to go to the police to report. Um, They may choose not to do that. Um, I want to make one further point, which is that sometimes we hear about sexual harassment or assault happening related to work, but not at work. So for example, at a work-sponsored party or on a work business trip or at some other work-related event, 
those types of events may have a close enough connection to the workplace such that the employer can be responsible for what happens. We had a case where a woman went to a work-sponsored event. The employer provided a lot of alcohol. The woman was sexually assaulted at that event, and we argued that that was connected closely enough to the workplace that the employer was responsible. What suggestions do you have for a person who finds himself in a position of being sexually assaulted at work? I think it's certainly a horrifying experience. And I hope that a person who has been sexually assaulted at work can find support either through a person who's a family friend or through a rape crisis counselor or through their health care provider in order to get support to deal with the physical and emotional repercussions of what happened. Once a victim has dealt with the most immediate needs that they have with respect to their physical and emotional health, they may need to think about other different things that they might need if they want to keep their job, if they want to keep working. That's where calling us might be helpful. We can give advice about what types of relief they might be entitled to at the workplace. Maybe they were sexually assaulted at work and they don't feel that they can go back. We want to make sure that survivors know about their rights to different forms of um, paid benefits, such as unemployment insurance. Generally, we have a standard in California that if you quit your job, you're not entitled to unemployment insurance, but there is an exception with respect to what's called a good cause quit. So if you have to quit your job because you were sexually assaulted or because you were subjected to domestic violence, there are some specific rules that apply with respect to trying to make it easier for you to get unemployment insurance benefits. So those are some of the things to think about. And as I mentioned earlier, some survivors absolutely have to keep working regardless of what crime they were subjected to. They feel that they are the sole support for their children or that they want to keep going to work because it gives them a focus, gives them a place to go, or they enjoy being at work for other reasons because of support of colleagues. And if they want to keep working, we want to be there to help them ask for the kind of modifications that they might need at work in order to do so. Uh, We call those um, accommodations, and some of them are for safety So sometimes you can ask for reasonable safety accommodations at work. Maybe you need a workplace transfer. Maybe you need your telephone extension changed. Maybe you need to move your parking space to somewhere closer to the front door. Those are all the kinds of things that we can talk about. But if you need accommodations at work because you have a physical or mental condition related to the fact that you were the victim of sexual assault or sexual harassment, stalking, or domestic violence, you also might be entitled to those as reasonable accommodations for a disability. And we advise people about their rights to disability-related accommodations as well. Well, thank you certainly for discussing the rights uh, of sexual survivors. I, I do want to move to this, the civil penalties for, for those uh, who have been sexually assaulted at work. How does that differ from sexual harassment as far as the civil context? There's a number of different possible civil penalties that might be available to someone who's a survivor of sexual assault. 
or a survivor of sexual harassment. And the first one that we think about as civil rights lawyers is the actual um, civil rights violation of sexual harassment. That's the kind of claim that we might bring. But there's another type of claim that we often bring that's called a tort claim. So that's a claim for the injury that you may have experienced. That can be the tort of assault, the tort of battery, the tort of false imprisonment. Those are some of the kinds of tort claims that we bring. And sometimes it's important to bring those tort claims of physical injury as well as a sexual harassment claim for a variety of reasons, including the fact that tort claims often have a longer statute of limitations. Generally in California, there's a two-year statute of limitations for tort claims. And what are the remedies if a survivor wants to bring a tort claim? What kind of outcome would they see in that situation? Typically, the legal remedies that are available in the civil context for survivors are monetary compensation for lost wages, for emotional distress, and to have their attorneys paid under some circumstances. Now, there are certain other types of remedies that survivors can look for in the civil process. One of the ones that we look to the most is something called injunctive relief. That's trying to make change at your workplace based on what happened to you. And so, for example, um, we sometimes have employees who work for an employer that has no policies whatsoever prohibiting sexual harassment. They have no postings. They have no training. No one knows anything about what to do if they're subjected to sexual harassment or sexual assault or any other unlawful conduct. And so sometimes what we'll ask for is that the employer has to provide policies. They have to provide postings. They have to train people. Um, We did have a case in which we were able to negotiate a settlement that involved one of the harassers being required to take a leave of absence from work for a six-month period that was an unpaid leave of absence. That was stopping short of having him terminated. Um, The court's ability to order relief is often limited in the sense that judges are not that comfortable ordering things other than money for the most part. Sometimes they'll order certain kinds of change. But if you begin a civil lawsuit, you can reach a resolution, often called a settlement agreement. And in a settlement agreement, your ability to ask for the remedies that you wish is in some ways limited only by your creative thinking about what you might like, uh, what might make things better for you, what might make a difference to you. And so we've seen things like a letter of apology. We've seen things like a victim writing a letter to the board of directors of the employer, explaining how the whole experience made them feel. Um, We've seen people ask for things like, I had a laptop that I used for work. I want to be able to take that with me, even though I'm now leaving the workplace, settling this case. So there's really a variety of remedies that we see. What I hear a lot from survivors is that they want to make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else. And so we do our best to think with survivors about what changes could be made in their workplace to make sure that the next person who works there is safer and doesn't have this experience of being subjected to sexual harassment or sexual assault. 
Interesting. Elizabeth, I'd like to continue our conversation with survivors' rights in in the workplace. How would you define domestic violence? There is a particular definition of domestic violence in the family code in California. And the reason that I was focused on that today is that I was looking up the California Labor Code provisions that cover the rights of domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking survivors to workplace modifications. And the definition of domestic violence is in Family Code 6211. And the definition of sexual assault is in the Penal Code in a variety of provisions. Um, And the definition of stalking is actually in both the Penal and the Civil Code. And um, this information can be found in the California Labor Code, in Labor Code 230J, and the different definitions are within J, J1, 2, and 3. Based upon those definitions, who would qualify as as a victim of domestic violence? Someone who has been subjected to domestic violence outside of the workplace is someone who can get these types of remedies in the workplace. And so domestic violence definition has a expanded over time. It's no longer someone that you live with necessarily. So it can be broader than that. And we have some pretty broad definitions in California in terms of domestic violence and what kinds of conditions you're subjected to. And so the definition of domestic violence is both a legal definition, but I think there's also an advocacy definition where there's this kind of cycle of violence and control. Violence doesn't have to be just physical violence. It can also be things like controlling someone, um, stalking them, limiting their movements, isolating them. So there's a number of different forms of domestic violence that can be covered. As far as the, the rights of domestic violence survivors in the workplace, could you could you touch on those and, and describe those for our listeners? Yes. The rights of domestic violence survivors in the workplace are actually quite an interesting area of law to me because when I started practicing law, there was basically two types of rights that survivors had. It was the right to take time off, to go to court, to testify, for example, to get a restraining order. That's in Labor Code 230. And then in Labor Code 230.1, if a survivor worked for an employer with 25 or more employees, they had the right to take time off work, have their job protected, to get services. So to get counseling or medical attention for domestic violence. But what we were finding from our clients is that they would call and say, I was a survivor of domestic violence. I told my employer about it. And they said, you're fired because we can't have people with those kinds of personal problems here. And that type of unlawful conduct was falling through the cracks. It was very difficult to get that kind of conduct um, prohibited because of the very limited language of these two labor code provisions. And so our office worked very hard to get the labor code amended. And so now the labor code prohibits discrimination against survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking, as well as providing them with these affirmative rights that I mentioned earlier to ask for safety-related accommodations. And I also was mentioning earlier that there may be some expanded rights to unemployment insurance for someone who has to quit their job 
due to domestic violence. And so these are the types of rights that domestic violence survivors often are unaware of. I think that often we see domestic violence as a crime that's, that happens in the home, that's very personal, that has nothing to do with the workplace. Certainly, sometimes domestic violence happens at work. Maybe the two individuals are involved in a relationship and they work together too. And domestic violence happens in the workplace. But even if you're a worker, you're subjected to domestic violence outside the workplace, you're still entitled to these types of workplace rights that I mentioned. So you might need time off. You might need to go to court. You might need to get counseling. But maybe you just need a modification at work. I have a client right now who left her abusive partner a number of years ago, but he still sometimes stalks her and shows up to her workplace or sends people there to check up on her, makes sure that she knows that there are people who are looking Um, checking up on her from him. And so she wanted a transfer. She worked for a major retail company who had a lot of different branches in her area. She needed a transfer from one store to the other due to domestic violence. That was the type of safety accommodation that should be allowed for under the labor code. But instead of granting her that transfer, this employer put her out on an unpaid leave. She's still on unpaid leave one year later. I've been working with this survivor for the last year. This is the second time this has happened to her at two different large retail organizations, both of whom should have known better. And so we're actually at this point considering legal action against her employer because after a whole year, she still hasn't been able to go back to work. We helped her get unemployment insurance benefits because her employer wasn't letting her work, even though she was ready to work. She just needed a transfer and she needed some modest accommodations like being able to park closer to the front store entrance, all related to domestic violence. And to my mind, all clearly allowed for under the labor code, but her employer has been refusing to give her these accommodations. This is actually quite a common experience that we have when we hear from domestic violence survivors. Not enough of them know about their rights. And when they do reach out, these kinds of scenarios are very common. And so that's part of why I wanted to be here today to make sure that domestic violence survivors knew about about our services, we're ready to advocate for survivors so that they can get back to work. And if a domestic violence survivor does have questions about their their rights, are they free to call your organization? Absolutely. We actually have a dedicated helpline for domestic violence survivors called Project Survive. I mentioned the number earlier, but let me give it again. It's 888-864-8355. This is a helpline. And if you call, you'll hear our outgoing message in English, Spanish, and Chinese. You can leave a message and we will get back to you and we'll talk through what your options might be with respect to your workplace rights. If a domestic violence survivor finds themselves in a position where they need to miss work for things, as you mentioned, perhaps going to court or for another reason, how would they go about um, exercising those rights or how would they go about that process in general? That's a really important question. They do need to give their employer some notice and their employer can ask for certification. So the employer can ask for a court order 
about, uh, for example, you know, setting a court date or they can ask for a letter from a domestic violence counselor. We have samples of the kinds of documentation that a survivor might be asked for on our website. And in fact, we have a whole toolkit for domestic violence survivors and their advocates. It provides detailed information about the legal rights, and it provides sample letters. So if an employee, if a worker isn't sure how to access their rights, how to tell their employer about what they need, we have sample letters available on our website, or a worker can call us and we can walk them through the next steps. But you're right, they do have to give some notice to their employer, um, ask for the time off, ask for the accommodations. And then if the employer is doing their job right, there should be granting survivors this time off or making these modifications. Should a domestic violence survivor have any fear of retaliation from her employer? And if there is a listener who who might be a domestic violence survivor and is concerned about either losing their job or having some retaliation in the workplace, what would you recommend to that, that individual? Retaliation is against the law. And so I would tell employers who are listening, don't retaliate against your workers for exercising their rights. But workers have a very real and practical understanding that retaliation can happen even though it's prohibited. And retaliation can take a number of different forms. The definition of retaliation is actually very intuitive for people, I think. If you engage in what's called protected activity, so you're asserting your legal rights in some way, like asking for time off to go to court, or you're asserting your rights as a survivor to safety accommodations, and your employer takes some action against you, an action that any reasonable person would see as a deterrent to exercising your rights. And it happens close in time to when you exercise your rights. In general, that's the beginning of a case of retaliation. And so these are the kinds of things that workers do experience all the time. They rightfully worry about them. And we can't promise workers that they won't be subjected to retaliation. We can tell them that it's against the law and that we can advise them about their next steps if they have been subjected to retaliation. But unfortunately, it does happen. It takes different forms. And workers need to know that. And they need to know that they have the right to pursue a claim of retaliation against their employer. Wonderful. And with respect to domestic violence survivors, stalking survivors, sexual assault survivors, and sexual harassment survivors, can you please provide the contact information for your organization again? Yes. Our organization has a helpline called Project Survive. It's 888-864-8355. They also can call our main number, which is 415-864-8848. And they can access us through our website, which is legalaidatwork.org. Elizabeth, I want to say thank you so much for coming on with us today. Uh, I'm sure I speak for everyone when I say uh, we all learned quite a lot. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Now that you've heard the show, please take a moment to rate and review it. And if you have any questions about any of the information you heard today, you can reach the Victims of Crime Resource Center at 1-800-842-8467. Or you can reach us online at 1-800-VICTIMS.org or Facebook at Victims of Crime Resource Center or Twitter 
at 1-800-VICTIMS. If you haven't had a chance, please take a look at some of the other episodes in our series. Thanks for listening.